Good morning. If you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 8. We continue this morning in our study through the Gospel of Luke. And we've been in this stretch of four narratives, uh, narratives in which Jesus clearly demonstrates through his miraculous power that he has absolute authority over all things. And so the first of those narratives was Jesus calming the storm. We looked at that a few weeks ago where Jesus powerfully demonstrates his authority over nature. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Last week we looked at the healing of the Garrison demoniac. There Jesus demonstrates his authority over the spiritual realm by commanding the demons, it doesn't matter if there's a legion of them, to leave the man and instead go into a herd of pigs. Now we come to the last two narratives in this little section here in Luke chapter 8. And we find two narratives that are closely intertwined together. The story of a woman with a discharge of blood and a the story of a man with a dying daughter. And through the two miracles that he performs here, Jesus is going to show his authority once again, but this time it's over disease and death. And that's a fitting climax to this section here because with nature's power and the spiritual realm subdued, well, those are the last two enemies left. But they're important enemies for him to demonstrate power over. uh, Because sure, he can still the waves and yes, he can cast out demons. But what difference does any of that make if ultimately we're still going to get sick and die? Yeah, I might not drown at sea. And I might not be tormented by demons. But so what if I'm still under the bondage of sin and its curse? Does it really matter that I survive the storm and the the demons leave my body if my body still decays and dies and there's no hope after that? But if this Messiah commands not only waves and water, if he commands not only the demons, but he also has authority even over sickness and death, Well, that makes all the difference in the world. Let's take a look down in your Bibles. You'll see what I mean when I said that these two stories are are intertwined. Uh, These two narratives literally interrupt each other. You see how we're introduced to Jairus in verse 40, and then we're told about his situation, verses 40 to 42. And then it's as Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house that the incident with the woman happens. That's in verses 43 through 48. Jairus is kind of pushed to the background as Jesus deals with the woman. But then after the woman is healed, she now exits stage left, and we're back to Jairus' situation in verses 49 through 56. And so our goal this morning is going to be to get through the first half of this passage. We're going to try to get through verses 40 to 48. So we're going to deal with a little bit of Jairus, mostly with the woman, 
And then next week, Lord willing, we'll finish the passage by looking at the conclusion of the story of Jairus. And so let's start by just reading our text. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 48. This is the word that God has for you this morning. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that apart from your grace, this time will be of no spiritual benefit to us. And we simply cannot change our own hearts by our own will or by our own might or in our own strength. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so we ask that you would please change us and shape us and sanctify us and speak to us through your word. That you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. Father, we also pray for those in our midst who do not know you, and those in this room who are spiritually dead and self-deceived and apathetic. God, we pray that you would use this word, this text, this passage to save their souls. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So four points, if you're taking notes. And since today is Palm Sunday, we're going to go with the letter P because it is vitally important that our alliteration matches up with the liturgical calendar. And so we're going to see the plea, the problems, the power, and the proclamations. Let's start with point number one, which is the plea. Let me just kind of set the scene here. Jesus returns. And so remember our lake right? The, the Sea of Galilee. They start on the northwest side by Capernaum, and they set out to go east, and that's where they run into that storm that Jesus stills. They land on the eastern shore of the lake in the country of the Gerasenes. That's where we meet the demoniac whom Jesus heals. But the people are terrified, and they ask him to leave, and so they get back in the boat, and they sail back towards the area of Capernaum, the northwest shore of the lake. And now look at verse 40. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And we've said a lot about these 
crowds, how they would follow Jesus' every move. But this is like next level commitment here. Like he leaves, he sails away, he's gone. They don't know how long he's going to be away. But the second he comes back, the crowd is already there. They're waiting for him. Now, were they literally waiting there all night, hoping that he would come back the next day? Or did they just quickly regather once word went out that his boat was coming back into view over the lake? We don't know. But either way, it's like as soon as he sets foot on the shore, the crowd is there waiting for him. And among their number is a man named Jairus. But this Jairus, uh, he is no ordinary man. He is just, he is not just another face in the crowd. And we know that simply from the fact that, well, we know his name is Jairus. I mean, think about it. All the people that we've run into in this gospel to whom Jesus has ministered, like for how many of them do we actually know their names? There's a leper in chapter 5. What's his name? We have no idea. There's a paralytic on the mat. What's his name? No idea. The centurion with the dying servant? We don't know. The widow of Nain? We know where she's from, but we don't know her name. The sinful woman who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair? No clue. The demoniac? We don't know. A legion wasn't his name. That was referring to the demons. We don't know his name. Luke doesn't give us any of their names because whether their names were Nehemiah or Maria or Abigail, it really doesn't matter. That information is not pertinent to the story in any way. But this guy, Jairus, we're told his name, implying that his name would have meant something to Luke's original readers. Uh, That is, Luke expected that most of his original readers would hear that name and be familiar with who he was talking about. And that shouldn't surprise us because verse 41 tells us that this man was a ruler of the synagogue. Which means he would have been responsible for everything that happened in the synagogue from running the services to overseeing the building to even caring for the scrolls. He wasn't a priest, and he wasn't part of the clergy, but he was an important leader in synagogue life. I remember life back then for the Jewish people revolved around the synagogue. And so Jairus, he would have been a well-respected man. He would have been a well-known man. He would have been a guy with significant standing in that community. Everybody knew his name. So even as there's this big crowd thronging around Jesus, waiting for him, you can imagine how everybody stopped and stared when Jairus, of all people, Jairus is falling at Jesus' feet and pleading with him to come to his house. And that's, that's Jairus. What's he doing bowing down before Jesus? The picture there is of prostration, right? He's, he's bowing down with his face to the ground. He is demonstrating a complete submission, a giving of honor. Rulers of synagogues, people with that much social clout, 
They're not supposed to be getting on their hands and their knees, prostrating themselves before people like that. That's way below people who are that important. That's totally improper. But what made this particular act of bowing down before Jesus even more shocking was that Jairus, by virtue of being a leader of the synagogue, a ruler of the synagogue, he would have been part of the Jewish religious establishment. And if we've learned one thing, anything, about the Jewish religious establishment so far in this gospel, it's that they don't like Jesus. They can't stand him because he's a threat to their entire system of works righteousness. They thought and they taught that the way to be right with God was to keep the rules, especially the rules that they themselves added to the law of God. But then here comes Jesus, And he's saying that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he's loving and he's ministering to tax collectors and sinners. And he's preaching this grace that's completely incompatible with our religious system. He threatened their very existence. And so the Jewish religious establishment, uh, they've been plotting for chapters. How they might trap him, how they might get rid of him. They might destroy him. That's the circle that this man, by virtue of the fact that he's the ruler of the synagogue, that's the circle that he would have been running in. Uh, These guys would have been his close associates. But Jairus, in spite of all of that, in spite of not only his standing in the community, but also his association with the religious establishment. Nonetheless, he falls at Jesus' feet in submission and honor. Because here's the thing. When your daughter is dying, when your only daughter is on the verge of death, all of a sudden, none of that other stuff matters at all. Like, who cares that all my Pharisee friends are going to shun me for bowing before Jesus like this? Who cares about my standing in the community, the, the respect of the crowds? Who cares if I look ridiculous in bowing before Jesus? Who cares how improper it might seem? This man was desperate. Truly desperate. There are few things that will make a man more desperate than watching his daughter die. And so all that matters to him at this point, the only thing that's running through his mind was that she might be healed. And so while his action, bowing before Jesus, well, might have been viewed as improper on many other fronts, In this one most important of ways, it was entirely proper, right? He got it exactly right because he prostrates himself before the one person in the world who can actually help him in his desperation. He bows before the one man who can actually save his daughter from death. And so Jairus says, if going to Jesus right now means I lose everything else, my friends, 
my status, my job, my standing, well then, so be it. You can take the world, but give me Jesus. Point number one, the plea. So Jesus agrees to go. And in the next scene, we find them making their way over to Jairus' house. You got Jesus. He's joined by Jairus and all the crowd. Jesus is on this mission to heal Jairus' dying daughter. But, pardon the interruption, Jairus is going to have to step out of the spotlight for a bit. Because here's the thing. Jairus isn't the only one in the crowd with a dire, desperate need. In fact, there's a woman in the same crowd on that same day who's dealing with a 12-year-old tragedy of her own. And so Luke just leaves us on the edge of our seats. What's going to happen to Jairus? What's going to happen to his daughter? Is she going to make it? What's Jesus going to do? All those thoughts for one week. Because Luke just completely abandons that storyline all the way until verse 49. In the meantime, he wants us, the reader, to be completely focused on this woman. Well, who is this woman? Well, we really don't know anything about her except for her problems. She is a woman who, at least in this narrative, is entirely characterized by her many problems. And so point number two, the problems. And you'll notice that that word problems is plural because this lady's got a bunch of them. First consider the physical problem. Verse 43, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And so she's got some kind of serious, prolonged bleeding condition. Now remember, Luke is a doctor. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And so surely, if it was important for us to know more details, like Luke, of all people, could have provided some, but he chooses not to. And so we don't know how her condition caused her to suffer physically. Like, was it a very painful condition? Uh, Did the loss of blood make her physically weak? Were there other symptoms in her body? Uh, We don't know. All we know is that her physical condition was bad enough that it caused her to repeatedly, continually seek help from many physicians. Now maybe this would be describing a condition that today could be repaired surgically. Uh, Praise God for uh, the advances in medicine that we have now. But back then, with their limited understanding of medicine and pathology and all that kind of stuff, it was basically an incurable disease. If it wasn't, surely some doctor, some medicine would have cured her over the 12 years that she sought help. But look at verse 43. She could not be healed by anyone look at this detail that Mark adds for us in his account describing the same woman, Mark 5.26. She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had 
and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so in spite of all the doctors that she went to over those 12 years, her condition not only didn't get better, it only got worse. We see Luke's description here of this woman's problems. It's not just limited to her body, physical suffering, because compounding those physical problems would have been her financial problem. We're told in that verse that she had spent all her living on physicians. In her desperation, she had presumably tried everything. This medicine and that treatment this regimen and that diet, in her desperation to find a cure. She tried everything, but the only thing that happened in all of those pursuits was that now she was broke. And so you've got this physical problem, you've got this financial problem, but this poor woman's problems don't stop there because now let's consider her social problem. Because of her medical condition, she basically would have been treated as an outcast in that society. Look what it says in Leviticus 15, specifically speaking about these kinds of discharges of blood. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Which means that for 12 years, for 12 years, that's 600 weeks, that's over 4,000 days, this woman was ceremonially unclean. Continuing in verse 26, every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. And so it's not just that she was not allowed to touch anybody lest they too become unclean. It's that if you touch something that she touched, like you sat down on her bed or you sat down in her chair or something like that, then you too became unclean. So you can just imagine how quickly this woman lost friends. No one's hanging out with her. I mean, just think about how many of our just basic interactions with one another would have been out of bounds for her. Handshakes and and hugs, high fives and fist bumps and just an arm around the shoulder, all of that was completely out of bounds. She probably had not touched another human being for 12 years. Now we're not given details here on her family situation, but I think it's safe to assume that because of all that, she was not married. Not only is her husband not mentioned in any of the accounts about her, but also I think it's quite unlikely that any man is going to marry a woman who is perpetually unclean. And that, of course, compounds that second problem of finances. She probably had no income, no means to support herself. Any savings or inheritance that she might have had is now all spent on useless cures. So now she's just consigned to this life of poverty. And so her problem was physical. Her problem was financial. Her problem was social. But also consider her spiritual suffering. 
as a result of her ceremonial uncleanness, well, that means she wouldn't have been allowed at the temple, in the synagogue, or really with any gathering of God's people. And so just imagine in your mind that you had some kind of condition that prevented you from gathering at worship services, from engaging in fellowship, having anything to do with the church, the people of God. But not just for a week, not just for a month, for 12 years. For one who truly loves God and his people, that might be right up there with the worst kinds of physical suffering. Many of us know from our own experience just how good it is to be with the people of God. Especially when we're experiencing afflictions in other areas of our life. Just how good it is to be with the people of God. But this woman, well, she didn't even have that. All that to say, this is a woman marked by suffering. Just characterized by her problems, physical, financial, social, spiritual. And you can just imagine how this, this manifold suffering from every angle and every aspect of her life, 12 long years, how that would have just drained her and her spirit. Any sliver of hope that she might have had in year one was now a distant memory over a decade later. Just put yourself in her shoes for a moment and imagine just how hopeless she must have felt. But hopelessness, hopelessness puts her in good company, at least in this gospel. The leper, the paralytic, the centurion, the widow at Nain, the sinful woman, the demoniac. Well, she's in good company because if we've learned anything from studying this gospel so far, it's that Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, that Jesus truly offers hope to the most hopeless. Even someone as hopeless as this woman. Point number two, the problems. That brings us to point number three, the power. So this woman's got a whole host of problems. But she gets word that Jesus is in town. She's early, surely heard of all the miracles that he's been doing, in particular his healings. We might read this gospel and we might breeze over some of the summary verses of the gospel I'm referring to verses like Luke chapter 4, verse 40. When the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Right? To us, we're reading this gospel. That's just kind of a, a verse that summarizes a portion of Jesus' ministry. Oh, but you see, to her, that, that was the most precious news in the world. A faint ray of hope in what's otherwise been 12 years of hopeless darkness. Wait a minute, you're telling me that Jesus laid his hands on every one of them? Every one of them and healed them? Well, could he, do you think, 
that he could heal even me. And so in desperation, but with this glimmer of hope, she makes her way among the crowd on that day. Remember what we said earlier. Like if there's one place this woman shouldn't be, it's in a crowd amongst people where there's a lot of bumping into and touching all kinds of people, making them unclean in the process. But she's desperate. And so she makes her way through the crowd and look at verse 44. She touches the fringe of Jesus' garment, probably referring to one of the tassels that would be hanging down from the corners of his outer garment. But why does she touch his garment? Well, given her state, right, given her uncleanness, uh, this woman is not just going to take the gyrus approach and just go up to Jesus with all eyes watching and then publicly plead with him to heal her. She's also not going to go up to him and just grab his hand or his foot or his head or whatever it is. That would draw way too much attention to her. Instead, she's going to try to do this as quickly, as inconspicuously, as quietly as possible. And so maybe I can't touch his head, maybe I can't touch his hand, but surely I can at least touch his clothing. And Mark gives us a little bit of insight into exactly what was going through her mind. Mark 5, 28. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So she somehow thinks that she can be healed by Jesus apart from his knowledge just by touching his garments. There's definitely an element of superstition here. As if his garments were somehow magical and powerful apart from him, apart from his power. And so all she has to do is just touch his garment and she can be healed. And when she does touch his garment, the fringe of his garment, verse 44, immediately, immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. Immediately. Do you see the significance of that word for this woman? Immediately, like nothing has happened immediately for her. She's had this for 12 years. She's tried everything. Nothing has been immediate. But now, immediately, she's been healed. And so she's thinking to herself, wow, that really worked. After 12 years of futility in searching for some cure, just like that, she is better. I mean, can you imagine the instantaneous joy that must have run through her heart? And to add to all that, nobody knows. All I have to do is just sneak away. And that's when what she feared materializes. Jesus stops and he asks, who touched me? Who touched me? So does Jesus really not know who touched him? Well, remember that Jesus, in his incarnation, fully God and fully man, one of the things that he did in taking on his human flesh was that he would sometimes limit the independent exercise of some of his divine attributes, like omniscience, like knowing all things. He doesn't lose his divine attributes, because then he would cease to be God, Uh, But he does voluntarily relinquish 
the independent exercise of some of these divine attributes at times. And so maybe, maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe this is a case where he really doesn't know who touched him. He knows he was touched because he feels the power going out from him, but he does not know who actually touched him. That's theoretically possible. But I think it's much more likely that he knew. He knew exactly who touched him. He knew exactly who he just healed. Look at how it says in verse 47 that the woman saw that she was not hidden. And so it certainly seems that she knew, that he knew, that she touched him. I think the reason that he asked that question, who touched me? It's not for the sake of his information. It's for the woman's sake to give her an opportunity to come forward. Not all that different from Adam, where are you? But regardless of why he asked the question, the response of the crowds to the question, who touched me, is immediate denial by everyone. It's like if you ever play a game of pickup basketball, ball goes out of bounds, everybody puts their hands up, you know, like, it wasn't me, I didn't touch it. Who touched me? Everybody said, it wasn't me. But then Peter says what everybody's thinking. Well, what do you mean, who touched me? And master, the crowds surround you. Everybody's pressing in on you. Everybody's touching you. Tomorrow morning, those of you who take the train to work, just try asking on a packed rush hour train, who touched me? Just see the kind of looks you're going to get. Right? Rush hour on the one train, at any given moment, you're bouncing off of 20 different people at once. That's basically what's going on here. So Jesus, what do you mean, who touched me? But Jesus clarifies. Now, I'm not just talking about bumping into one another in the crowd. I'm talking about a specific kind of touch. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And the woman realizes she can hide no more, and she falls at Jesus' feet. Point number three, the power. And before we move on, I want to just take a step back here and remember the context of what's going on here. Remember that all of this is happening as Jesus and the crowds and Jairus are walking to his house so that Jesus might do something about Jairus's dying daughter. Like, this is an emergency. This is a dire situation. This is a desperate situation. Jesus is on an urgent mission. And in the middle of that urgent mission that Jesus is on, he is, for lack of a better word, interrupted by this woman who is trying to basically sneak a healing. But instead of just moving on, instead of just ignoring this potential interruption, Jesus has paused on everything that's going on to now address the woman. Friends, that speaks powerfully to the kind of Savior that we have. Now, humanly speaking, he is never rushed. He's never stressed. He's never thrown off course. He is always operating perfectly according to the Father's will. 
He is content in God's perfect timing, knowing that every quote-unquote interruption that happens in his life is providentially ordered according to God's will. So Jesus never turns away those who would come to him. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. When he's teaching, when he's teaching the word of God and he's interrupted by uh, literally the roof is falling in because a bunch of knuckleheads thought it'd be a good idea to let down their paralyzed friend from the ceiling. Well, he's not flustered. Instead, he uses that as an opportunity to teach about the forgiveness of sins and compassionately heal the man both in body and soul. Or when he's sound asleep, finally getting some rest, and he's interrupted by the panicked disciples. He's not flustered. He's not angry. Instead, he uses that as an opportunity to not only demonstrate his power over the wind and the waves, but also teach his disciples about what it means to have faith in him. And when he's going to the house of an important man in the community to heal his dying daughter, and he's interrupted by this woman who touches his garment, he's not thrown off at all. Instead, he takes time to compassionately minister to and love her poor, battered, beleaguered soul. Friends, this was really convicting for me as I thought about this. Maybe you're like me and you have your plans. This is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to go and that is what I'm going to accomplish. Our plans are far less noble than healing a dying daughter, but they are our perfect plans. And the worst thing that can happen in that case is that something or more frequently someone interrupts your perfectly crafted plans and now your entire day is ruined. You're completely thrown off, right? Unforeseen delays left and right and then your heart begins to murmur and grumble and complain. Friends, what we need to do, what I need to do in that moment is to really believe what I know to be true about the sovereign providence of Almighty God. And to view those interruptions as divine providential appointments. Opportunities to minister to, love my neighbor. Opportunities to glorify God in unforeseen ways. Opportunities to grow in contentment and patience and perseverance. And to see all of those things as far more valuable in the economy of God than how efficiently my plans might be executed. Basically, as Christians, we can't just love and exalt and champion the doctrine of God's providence when it fits nicely with our well-made plans. That brings us to the end of the narrative. Point number four, the proclamations... Again, notice the plural, because there's actually two proclamations here at the end of the story. The first comes from the woman. Look at verse 47. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared, proclaimed in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. 
she saw that she was not hidden. Again, implying that she knew that Jesus knew that she touched him. And she trembles as she falls to the ground. Why is she trembling? For one, this is exactly what she was trying to avoid by trying to touch him covertly from behind. Remember this woman, her condition. She's been completely removed from society, ostracized, isolated, and lived in shame and embarrassment for over a decade. The last thing she wants to do here is be given the mic to speak publicly on what just happened. Add to that the fear that the crowds would be upset. After all, you... Now we're all technically unclean because you touched me. You've been bumping into me. And the fear that Jesus might be upset. Is he going to be angry with me that I basically just tried to steal a healing from him? And finally, maybe most significantly, this realization that this is no ordinary man who is standing before her. If he really did just heal me, If he really did do what was otherwise impossible, like no doctor, no physician could heal this for 12 years, but just by touching him, I've been healed. Just by touching his garment, I've been healed. Well, then what manner of man is this? This is nothing else than the power of God. And so all of that is running through her head, also realizing that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so she comes clean. She tells everyone within earshot about everything that just happened. And that brings us to the second proclamation. And this one comes from Jesus. It's in verse 48. A daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Let's think about that, that statement. First, your faith has made you well. A more direct translation there would be your faith has saved you. That's how the same exact Greek phrase is translated just a chapter earlier at the end of chapter 7, verse 50. Remember that sinful woman where Jesus tells her your sins are forgiven? Well, that exchange leads to the same exact phrase as we have here. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But for some reason, the translators translate it one way in Luke 7 and another way in Luke 8. I don't think that's right. Uh, The root word there in Greek is uh, one that typically refers to spiritual salvation. It's the same word that we see in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I think we're supposed to see this narrative as more than just a physical healing. This is more than just her discharge of blood going away. This is about the salvation of her soul. Your faith has saved you. We get a second clue pointing in that same direction from how Jesus addresses her. Daughter. This is the only place in the scriptures in which Jesus refers to someone as daughter. A daughter Not only a term of endearment and love, but also pointing to the fact that she was now in the family of God. And third, look at the ending. Go in peace. A common farewell back then. Sure. But one with an amplified meaning, perhaps, for a daughter of God who had just experienced the salvation of her soul. Peace with the holy God. Yeah, I think so. 
Maybe what's most remarkable, though, about his proclamation here is that Jesus commends the woman for her faith. He commends her for a faith that, as readers of this narrative, uh, just kind of objectively assessing what's going through her mind, uh, we have to conclude that she is mistaken on several fronts. For one, there's that whole superstition thing. Right? She is believing that touching Jesus' garment would heal her. Then there's this mistaken notion that she has to touch him to be healed. We know from the centurion's servant that touch is no requirement for Jesus' healing power. And finally, there's also this misunderstanding of Jesus' character. Like how Charles Spurgeon put it, he says, she was a stranger to the generosity of Jesus' character, or she would not have gone behind to steal the cure which he was so ready to bestow. You follow what he's saying there? She's misunderstanding Jesus' gracious, giving character. And so her knowledge is, her knowledge is definitely lacking. But for all the ways in which her knowledge was incomplete, this one thing is true. The object of her faith was Jesus. Like in her desperation, she truly believed that Jesus was who he said he was. That Jesus could do something that only God could do. Her faith had found a resting place, but it was not in device or creed. In her case, uh, that faith was mixed with some superstition, mixed with perhaps a misunderstanding of the character of Christ. But you see, it was faith nonetheless. I might say a, a faith as small as a mustard seed, but at the end of the day, she had faith in Jesus. And so he doesn't break this bruised reed. He doesn't quench this smoldering wick. Instead, he commends her for even this tiny little faith that she displays. And friends, ought we not be also thankful for this gentle and lowly Savior? Let me just think about your own testimony. How many of us were saved in churches or under ministries whose theology we would now realize was oh, a bit off? Where you would say, I would not go there now. But I sure am thankful that God used that ministry in spite of the things that they got wrong to reveal himself to me. How many of us had such incomplete, maybe even erroneous knowledge of the Lord and the gospel when we got saved? Things that we only came to understand years after the Lord first revealed himself to us. Brothers and sisters, what we know, what we know is not ultimately what saves us. Uh, who we trust is what ultimately saves us. Now, should we pursue correct thinking about God? Yes, of course, with all of our might, that we might know him rightly. He is a God of truth who has revealed himself to us, and so we ought to pursue that truth with all of our might. And is it possible for what we know to be so off that it's no longer the biblical Jesus and the true gospel that is the object of our faith, in which case the salvation that we would have would be null and void? Yeah, of course, right? We call that heresy. If you're believing in heresy, well, it does matter what you know. 
because then you are not placing your faith in the true Jesus and his true gospel. But within the bounds of what we might refer to as biblical Christianity, the question that determines our eternity is not so much how much do you know, what do you know? It's who are you trusting? Is your trust in Jesus and his work? This woman, in spite of all that she got wrong, she did get that one thing right. She was trusting Jesus. She was trusting Jesus alone. And so our Lord commends her for her faith. So now with this final proclamation, I think we can piece together why Jesus called this woman out in the first place. Why, Why does he call her out in front of the crowd, even against her initial wishes? Well, for one, a public profession by her and this public acknowledgement by Jesus Well, that would allow her, as one who's been ostracized from society, who's been shunned from public life for the last decade plus, to be integrated back into society. Like, her discharge is gone, she is clean, and now all of you know it. Which means you can hug her, you can invite her over for dinner, and she can come worship in the synagogue. She can be part of normal human life again. But second... Calling the woman out allows Jesus to correct what might have been erroneous, superstitious thinking. She thinks, if I touch even his garments, I, may be, I will be made well. Uh, she legitimately thinks, right, before and immediately after the healing, that there's some kind of magical power in his garments, and Jesus corrects her. Daughter, that's not quite right. There is no magic in my clothes. It's not touching my garments that made you well. It's your faith that made you well. It's faith in me that made you well. And third, and how wonderful this is, calling the woman out allows Jesus to give her assurance. Because suppose that he didn't confront her. Suppose that she just touched his garment, got healed, and he let her leave well, sure, she felt like her body was healed, but, but what assurance could she really have? But when Jesus confronts her and publicly addresses her, when he makes his proclamation to her, well, now she's got all the assurance in the world. With regards to her physical problems, she is assured by the one who healed her that she was truly healed. With regards to a financial problem, now she's assured that she'll never have to spend another dime Another denarius on this issue again. With regards to her social problems, she has been publicly declared clean. And so that problem is now fully resolved. And with regards to her spiritual problem, and this is the big one, right? Not only is she no longer unclean and cut off from corporate worship, now she's been made right with God, a holy God. And she is now a daughter of the king. And so she has peace. Point number four, the proclamations. So the plea, our passage begins with Jairus pleading for Jesus to come and heal his daughter. The problem, we're going to have to come back to Jairus next week because there's another person in the crowd with great problems of her own, physical, financial, social, spiritual. The power, the woman comes up to Jesus from behind. She's healed according to her plan. But then it goes awry when Jesus singles her out 
which leads to the proclamations. She comes clean, tells everybody what happened, and then Jesus responds with what must have been the sweeter words of assurance than she could have ever imagined. A daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. One more thought before we close. When the woman comes and she touches Jesus, and Jesus asks, who touched me? Peter's response this seems to be the natural one. Right? Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched me? Everybody's all around you. But no, Jesus says, this is a different touch. This is a touch of faith. This is the touch of one who truly believes that I can do what only God can do. And so this narrative makes this big difference between everybody touching Jesus in the crowds and this woman touching Jesus in faith. That there is a difference between the touch of the crowds and the touch of faith. Because all these people who are just bumping into Jesus left and right on the road, on the way to Jairus's, well, they don't all have their bodies renewed by just touching Jesus. As if he were wearing some kind of magical cloak, you just have to touch it. No, the only person in this narrative who experiences any kind of healing, all kinds of healing, is this woman who truly believed. And that's why Jesus specifically draws attention not to her touching him, not to her physical proximity to him, not to her being a part of the crowds around him. No, he draws specific attention to her faith. Your faith has saved you. And friends, the same principle is true for us. It's pretty simple. It's pretty easy. It's pretty straightforward to be part of the crowd. And to be around Jesus, so to speak. Right? To be near to the things of God. To be a member of the church. But you see, all of that means nothing if it's not accompanied by true faith in Christ. And the sad fact is, the sad reality is that there's many people in churches like ours, perhaps there's some of you in this room this morning, who just assume that because you're part of the gathering, because you're in the crowd, because you participate in the activities, that that's enough to make you right with God. But just because you're surrounded by believers, that does not make you a believer by proximity, a believer by association, there's simply no such thing. Just because you're planted in a fruit-bearing orchard with fruit-bearing trees around you, that doesn't mean that you yourself are not a dead tree. To use the parable of this chapter, just because you happen to be around good soil, that doesn't mean that you too are automatically good soil. And just because you happen to be in the crowd that day, bumping into and, and touching Jesus when this woman comes and expresses her faith in reaching out and touching him, that really says nothing about your own standing with the Lord. I say all that to say this. The issue of salvation, the issue of where you will spend eternity, 
in heaven, in the presence of the Lord, or in hell, paying for your sins, the issue of salvation has really little to do with any crowds, any gatherings, any churches that you might find yourself a part of. No, it's all about your faith in Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again for your sins? That's what matters. This story powerfully demonstrates the difference between the touch of the crowds and the touch of faith. And it reminds us that being around Jesus and believing Jesus are not at all the same thing. Let's pray. Father, we know that faith is not something that we can muster up ourselves in our own strength, just try really hard, that faith is a gift from you, that faith and repentance are granted by a sovereign God. So we pray that you would grant to us that faith, that you would strengthen the faith of those who are already your children, that we might more truly rely upon Christ and Christ alone, that you would grant faith for the first time to those in this room who do not know you, that you might awaken their spiritually dead souls and allow them to be born again. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.